You guys know what epistemology is? Epistemology? That's an old farming word, Bill. Epistemology. Can you hear me? Not very well? Uh, is it bad? Can you hear me in the back? I'll be louder. Epistemology is an old farming word. Not really. Epistemology is just a word that describes uh, what we can know. How can you know something's true? Epistemology is it's the study of what can we know? How can we know something for sure? What can we not know? Epistemology is how can we know? What can we know? What can we not know? You know, in the big arena, in the big idea realm of something like God, you've got people in the world today who would tell you they're atheists. And, and that means that they don't believe in a God. They, they have no knowledge of God. They don't believe God exists. There's nothing to know about God because there is no God. You could talk to an agnostic. And this would be someone who says, I don't know if there's a God. I don't know, not only do I not know God personally, but I don't know if there is a God. I'm not sure. You could even, though, talk to people who are religious, and I'm thinking particularly uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, where even if I say there's a God, the thought of God is basically an impersonal force. There's some exceptions to this in Buddhism, but generally the concept is I am God, God is me, and to attain ultimate reality, I, I realize my own deity. And, but deity in the end is kind of an impersonal kind of universe around us. So we could say we, we believe in God, but we don't believe in a God who's personal that we can know. Or if you go to a religion like Islam also, you might hear Muslims say that Allah is the same as the God of the Old Testament, but that simply is not true. Allah is an impersonal God who has no personal interaction with humans on the earth. Allah, the God of the Muslims, is not the God of the Old Testament, even though they say He's the same God that was Abraham's God, etc. Uh, they, they do not describe the same God. Allah is impersonal. You can't know Him because He's unknowable. He's distant and He's removed. He has spoken, as it were, through the prophet Muhammad, but Allah Himself is not knowable. You can't know Him counter all this, Christianity comes in and says, not only is there a God, God is, and God is knowable, and not only is He knowable, but He actually desires to be known. God is, He's knowable, and He desires to make Himself known. This runs counter to most other religions in the world, most other views of life as well. This is our fifth week in the series, God Is, and this morning, God Is Knowable is our theme. God Is Knowable. You know, from the opening uh, pages of the Bible, when you look at the creation account, it's clear from the start that God created us to know Him. God created us to know Him. Genesis 1, 26, in the creation account, God said, let us make man in our image According to our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We talked before when we talked about the Trinity that being created in the image of God included this 
male and female aspect, that just as God was more than one person in a unity, that mankind was more than one person in a unity as well. Besides that, though, think of it this way. When God created man, man was the pinnacle of creation, and he was kind of like the rest of the creation, the animal life in this, that his life, his body was taken from the earth. So he's like the animals because he has a physical body, dust from dust. You know, when we're buried, dust to dust. You were, you were dust, man, and that's what you're going back to. Physically, we're like the rest of the creation around us. But we're different because God breathed into Adam the breath of life. And Adam became a living soul. That is, God gave Adam and Eve a spirit. And because man was a spiritual being created in God's image to have a spirit, man, unlike the rest of the animals, could interact with God and could know God personally because, like the Creator, he was a spiritual being. You know, you may have pets at home and you interact with your pets and you love your pets and your pets love you, but there's a limit to how well your pets can know you because they are unlike us in that sense. God created man a spiritual being so that man could know him a spiritual creator. So we're made in the likeness of God and part of that includes that we have a spirit and having a spirit we can know a spiritual creator. In the Genesis 3 account of the fall, do you remember that God has one item that Adam and Eve can't do in all of the creation, all the wonders of Eden, don't do one thing, don't eat from that tree, which of course they do. And they fall and it says their eyes are open, they know good from evil, not a good thing in this case. Genesis 3.8, following their fall, immediately they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. In Genesis 1, we're told we're created spiritually like God so that we can know Him. In Genesis 3, we see, apart from the fall, we see that God was known personally by face, as it were, and by sound to Adam and Eve. We don't know how long this age of innocence in Eden lasted. You know, the story goes so quickly that we assume it wasn't very long. But when this says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, what does that imply? It implies Adam knew what God walking in the garden sounded like. And the story just says the Lord was walking in the garden. It's just matter of fact. This was normal. So not only does Genesis 1 tell us that they were created to know God by being spiritual beings, Genesis 3 makes it clear they had visited face to face with God. We assume this is God the Son before the incarnation taking on some kind of visible appearance as you see later in the Old Testament stories, same thing, and was interacting personally with Adam and Eve so that they knew God as it were face to face. They knew what God walking in the garden sounded like. Man was created to know God because he was spiritual. And we see from the earliest pages that Adam and Eve had this face to face personal knowledge of God, which is why they knew what he sounded like after they'd blown it and want to hide. You know, when you read the opening account of creation too... um, you get, you know, day one, God does this. Day two, God does this. You know, you look at the stars and people are fascinated. I don't know if you read in the newspaper, Hubble Space Telescope was in the news because we've lost the major mirror and we can't do all kinds of things. 
You know, in the creation account, when God creates the stars, it says He created the stars too. He created the stars also. But about the creation of Adam and Eve, that takes the balance of the first three chapters of the Bible. God's emphasis isn't on the rest of creation. It's on Adam and Eve. That's His focal point because those are the creation from His hand that are going to be able to know Him personally. You know, the problem is, of course, Eden didn't last long. So you go from Adam and Eve enjoying this personal face-to-face knowledge of God. Sin comes in. They die spiritually immediately. The physical process of death enters in. They're forced out of the Garden of Eden. And life goes on. Only their knowledge of God now, it's not the face-to-face kind. There's a problem now. We've lost Eden. We've lost innocence. And we've lost the face-to-face knowledge of God. So in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, you've got man's creation, created to know God, but blows it and loses this intimate knowledge of God. You go to the end of the Bible and what do you have? You've got, in a sense, Milton had it right, paradise restored. And now Adam and Eve's children, so to speak, mankind, are welcomed back into God's personal presence. If you look from Revelation 19 through 22 not into a garden, but into the temple, face-to-face with God in heaven again. And then, of course, in between, you've got the whole story of redemption. You see that God, from, of course, from eternity past, knew what would happen. But the rest of the Bible recounts God's not attempt, but His work to bring about again this personal knowledge of Him that man could again know God personally. And that's the balance of the story of the Bible. If you read some of the Old Testament passages that talk about what the future looks like for the earth, and this is messianic, this is when King Jesus would reign on the earth again related to God wanting man to be able to know him personally, Isaiah 11:9 describes this time this way. It says, They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Almost the same words in Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, when God's bringing things more to the way He intended them to be, when King Jesus rules on the throne in Jerusalem, what will describe life on the earth? People will know God again. That's His goal. That's, his, that's the aim He's working towards. When the Messiah reigns from Jerusalem... The knowledge of God will cover the earth as the seas cover the earth now. The knowledge of God will be pervasive. Everyone will know God again. This is a good thing. You and I were created to know God. And then redemption is about being redeemed back to know God. Look at a passage like 1 Corinthians 1.9. Paul says that we were called into the fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. When you and I are saved, we're not just saved from something. Um, in fact, I don't know very many people today uh, versus years past, generations ago. If you would proclaim the gospel, people need uh, reference for the good news, so you tell them the bad news. You're lost. You're without God. You're without hope in time. And to die that way means you're without God and without hope in eternity. So people were motivated to get saved from something. This is good. Getting saved from a Christless eternity is a good thing. But you're more than saved from something. You're saved to something. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, your salvation is calling you into fellowship with Christ. You're, you're not just saved from hell. 
You're saved to know Christ. Redemption is not just something that you're kept from. It's something you're brought to. Redemption is all about being brought back into this personal knowledge of God himself in Christ. Or in John 14, 20, the night before Jesus' crucifixion, he's reassuring his followers that it's going to be okay despite what's coming in the next few days. And he says this, post-resurrection, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you're in me and I am in you. He who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Jesus says that after the crucifixion and resurrection, after he goes back to heaven, he's going to do this spiritual tag team in which he'll send the Holy Spirit into the world. And he says, when you get the Spirit, this is what he'll do. He will disclose me to you. He'll make me known to you. For Christians, having the Holy Spirit, being a Christian means that God's in us and the Holy Spirit's mission is to make God the Father and Jesus the Son known to us, to manifest them to us or disclose them to us. So as a Christian today, we weren't just created for fellowship in the past, but we're redeemed to know God now. And Jesus says he sent his spirit so that we would know him. The spirit would be within us and he would disclose the Father and the Son to us. So we're redeemed to know God. We've got the Holy Spirit to accomplish that mission. Think about this too. If Adam and Eve had not sinned and lived in Eden forever and and had had children and we were alive today, still in the Garden of Eden, uh, we would still have this face-to-face fellowship with God. We'd have spiritual fellowship with God because He's spirit and we have spirits also. But in redemption, God took something that was good, that our humanity, our being created in His image, and then He made it, if you could use this term, quantumly better. Think of this, in the garden, Adam and Eve were spiritual, but they were creatures. They were creations. But in redemption, a passage like Titus 3.5 says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. In redemption, you and I don't just regain spiritual life, but we actually regain a new spiritual life, which is Christ's life. We're given God's life. So we were spiritual creatures before, but as regenerate people, we have the very life of Christ within us. The regeneration takes place by the Holy Spirit. It's God implanting His life in us. So in redemption, we go from being able to know God as creatures to being able to know God as someone who's like Him because we share His very life. You can look in Romans 8.15. Paul says there, you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, You've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. In creation we were creatures, but in redemption we're children. So before sin we could know God as creatures, but post-resurrection in redemption we can know God not just as those who have a spirit and now have his spirit, but as those who are his children. This is entirely different. So the knowledge that we can have of God now is multiplied times more personal than that which we could have had as merely creatures before. By the way, as you look in the scriptures, you'll see that the terms and the analogies God gives about our relationships with Him are inherently personal. So when He talks about Israel in the Old Testament, He talks about Israel as His wife or His bride. 
Or when you talk about the church today, you're talking about the bride of Christ. You're called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Or to us as children of God today. All of these relationships require intimate knowledge. They're not even just friends, which requires a pretty good knowledge of someone else. These are relationships that require, that are built around the premise of intimate knowledge of the other. And that's the kind of language God uses in both Testaments towards those he's in relationship with. Let me read you a couple passages briefly that just talk about the knowledge of God that you can know him, not just by creation, but also by revelation. 2 Peter 1, 2 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. When Peter's talking about you experiencing God's grace or his favor and peace, he says you experience that through the knowledge of God. It's through knowing God that you get the sense of God's favor towards you and God's peace for you. That's through God's knowledge. Or when Peter says God's given you everything you need to live life well, he says that comes through the true knowledge of God. Knowledge of God gives you the sense, the appreciation of God's grace and favor in your life. It gives you the benefit of His peace. It gives you the tools, if you will, to live life successfully on this earth. That's all from knowing God, knowing Him personally and intimately. Or in Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, this is a passage we've looked at before, but in verse 17, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that God might give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. And remember, the Ephesians, they were the -the state-of-the-art church, whether you're looking at the epistle or in Revelation, the letters to the churches. Ephesus was the -the state-of-the-art church. This was the happening place. And Paul's prayer for them is they would know God more. If that was his prayer for them, that's a pretty good prayer for ourselves, that we would know God more, that God would reveal more of himself to us. That's Paul's prayer for them. If you and I are created to know God, and then if we're redeemed to know God, how, how do you get this knowledge of God? How does the knowledge of God come about? What does that look like? How do we grow in this knowledge of God? You guys know a few of these already, I'm sure, but let me mention just a few. The first is this. If you looked at the stars last night, you know something about God. Or if you've looked at the trees in the field or the grass, you know something about God. If you've looked at the world around you, the Bible says you know something about God, even should you choose to ignore it. Psalm 19 says, The heavens are telling the glory of God, their expanse declares the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words, that is, it's not articulated through a mouth where their voice is not heard their line has gone out through all the earth their utterances to the end of the world you know way back in David's day they're saying that all you have to do to know something about God is look around look at the skies because they're telling about God's glory when I look at the beauty of the ordered universe around me whether it's the sun rising in the morning or setting in the evening or the moon in its phases, or the planets and the stars out, the psalmist says those things are telling God's glory. I know something about God if I never read a Bible and if I never hear the gospel, I already know something about God. 
In fact, in Romans 1, Paul takes the same theme. He actually says that for man to be an atheist or an agnostic requires a conscious turning of that person from what God has obviously revealed. If, you tell so, if someone tells you that they're an atheist, it implies something. If they tell you they're an agnostic, it implies something about their will. Because Paul says that to deny God is to have to, is, requires turning away from what he's already revealed about himself. So in Romans 8, excuse me, 1, 18 through 20, we read that that which is known about God is evident within them. And he's talking about Gentiles in this passage. That which is known about God is evident. It is obvious. We, this is not straining something. We don't have to figure or read books to know this. It's obvious. His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So that, Paul says, they're without excuse. That is, if I say there's no God or I'm not sure there is a God, Paul says, I'm without excuse because God has given such a demonstrable testimony to who He is through the creation. Paul says you've got to turn from what's obvious and evident to say there's no God or that God can't be known because the universe itself declares His glory. It declares His, Paul says, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature. For you and I to know something about God, you don't even have to crack your Bible. You just have to look at the world around you. And this is true for everyone around you as well. And I do think this is a way you and I can get to know God and appreciate God. When you see the beauty or the order of the world around you, it's mind-boggling. You know, the more we learn, the more we learn how complex it all is. And we can't figure it out. Well, that just tells me how complex God is and how smart God is and wise and powerful. We don't have to get to any more... Uh, written documentation than the writing in the sky or the testimony of the world around us to know something, something pretty remarkable actually about God. The second one is through the scriptures and this is kind of the one where we hang our hat and we should because God has caused men to write down his words through the ages and then has preserved them so that we can know very specific things about God personally as well as what God's up to, what the end of the story's like. In Luke 24, if you remember after the crucifixion and on resurrection day, the disciples are kind of getting news that maybe something's up and they're not sure what to make of it. And in Luke 24, two of these disciples are dejectedly walking home to Emmaus from Jerusalem and the day's winding down and they're talking to each other and they're disappointed because they thought Jesus was the one. And Jesus comes up, and as with some of the other appearances, they don't recognize him. And he asks them what's going on, and so they fill him in. And then in Luke 24, 27, it says, Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And we don't know exactly all that he touched on. The New Testament wasn't written. But Jesus takes these two disciples and as they walk along the road, he just starts recounting Old Testament passages to them, which he said talked about him. You know, we read the Old Testament today because we have the New Testament and we can see Jesus in the promise in Genesis 3 or in the Passover lamb or all these other things. Jesus was taking them maybe through some of these same stories and he was telling them, that's me. 
The point is, when you and I read our Bible, we read our Old Testament or New Testament, it's the story about Christ. It's not just a story about history and geography and what happened to who and when. It's actually recording about God and about Christ so that when we read our Bibles, we ought to be asking the question, what do I know about God because of this passage? You know, I understand when people say they get bogged down in Leviticus, parts of Deuteronomy, parts of uh, Judges, etc., If we ask ourselves, what does this teach me about Christ? If I'm looking for God in the details, I can always come up with something. And Jesus took these two disciples and said, let me show you these stories about me. They may not have recognized them before. Jesus walks them through the Old Testament stories and said, those are about me. You and I learn about God when we read the Bible. Or John 5, 39, you might know your Bible well and still be an atheist, You know, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, you know, they would have had most of the Old Testament memorized, the Sanhedrin folks. So Jesus is talking to guys who know their Bible. That is, they know what it says. They don't know what it means. So in John 5, 39, Jesus says this to the religious leaders, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. See, they'd read the information, but they didn't, No, it's meaning. So the Bible's about Jesus. He says it testifies about me. Yet when he shows up in their midst, he's rejected. Well, he's just telling them, guys, you don't get it. You're reading the right book. You've got the right information. You just don't understand what it means because it's testifying to me. The Bible testifies to Christ and to God the Father. So when we read it, we ought to be gaining knowledge of God. And last in this line, Revelation 19.10, you know, everyone's kind of, if you know anything about the book of Revelation, it's, you know, seven trumpets, seven bowls, wrath, the end. We all want to know who wears 666, who is the Antichrist, when does he come? But you know, in Revelation 19.10, we're told that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That is the thought, something like this. If you read Revelation and you understand the trumpets and the bowls and who the Antichrist is and when he comes and you miss Christ, you miss the whole thing. Because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Prophecy in the end is about Christ. It's not about the Antichrist. It's not about the bowls of wrath or judgment or the trumpets, etc. If you read all those prophetic passages and you don't see Christ, you missed it just as the Pharisees missed it when they read their Bibles and didn't recognize Jesus. The Scripture is the testimony to God and specifically to Christ. So when we read our Bible, we should be asking ourselves, what do I know about God because of this passage? If we read it and we get lots of other information, but we miss that, we've missed the whole boat. The Scripture is there for us to know God. You should be reading your Bibles, by the way. You know, I haven't said this for a long time. If you don't start your day with your Bible, you're missing out. Uh, you know, we give God the first of our money because He owns it all. And I believe we should, the best, the best is to give God the first part of our day because He owns all our time too. And when we do that, and when we open our day in His Word, we're saying, God, what do you want me to know about you today? What do I need to know from you to live life successfully today? If life and peace on the earth, success come from knowing you, Lord, what do I need to know about you today? This is a good thing. If you're not starting your day with your Bibles, you should. 
Here's another one. Now, this is a little different. Did you know that another way that you gain knowledge of God and of Christ personally is through the church? It's through the church. Now, let me preface this by saying this. You know in the world in which we live in, the church is the red-headed stepchild of this culture that gets kicked and set in the corner. And frankly, there's a lot of good reasons for this. Uh, just read the newspapers, and you know, the name of Christ has suffered a lot of, uh, a lot of dirt you know, by people who call themselves by His name. And I don't mean to diminish any of this. Uh, Christians are often accused of hypocrisy, of double talk, of, of all kinds of things. Poor living, saying one thing, doing another. And you know the problem is that the church, broadly speaking, by and large, is guilty of most of what it's accused of by the larger culture. So I don't want to minimize any of that at all. But you still gain knowledge of God through the church that you won't get any other way. Ephesians 1, and 23 says this, God gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church is the fullness of Christ. Now, no matter how bad it gets or how ugly we look, no matter how badly Christ's image in His body is reflected, the church is the fullness of Christ. So you learn something about Christ and about God through the church that you don't get elsewhere. Because it's His fullness. It is His body. He still claims it. He still operates through His body. So you and I gain knowledge of God through each other. Sometimes, once in a while, you'll meet a Christian, they've been burned. And I've known lots of Christians like this. And it goes like this. I was in this church, I thought everything was okay, and the bottom fell out. And I don't trust those Christians anymore. I'm a Christian, but I don't want to go to church anymore. I understand the disappointment, and again, don't mean to minimize it in any way. But the problem with that is, you've cut yourself off from Christ. Not personally, you can still have a relationship. I don't mean to say you don't. You've cut yourself off from the knowledge of God and of Christ that comes only through the church. God's still working in the church, messy as it is. He's still speaking in the church. And you'll gain knowledge of God and of Christ through the church that you won't get any other place. 1 Corinthians 12, you guys know the passage 12 through 14 is all about the fact that the Holy Spirit of God, when you're saved, gives you some unique ability to serve others. And there's a variety of ways. Uh, There's three different lists in the New Testament that God gives you a spiritual gift. And one of the ways we gain knowledge of God is when we rub shoulders with someone else who's a Christian who's not like us. They have a different ability. They have a different view of life. They have a different spiritual gift. You and I learn something about God through the diversity of the people and the gifts in the church that you won't learn elsewhere. So no matter how bad it gets, you know, uh, Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, uh, the church is a big house and there's vessels to honor and dishonor. That is, you know, there's corruption and there's reality. And he says, you make it your aim. You gather together with those who, as far as you can tell, are calling on the Lord out of a pure heart. You know, you abstain from these things, but you still gather together. Find some folks that you have common ground with that you believe are trying to honor Christ, and you meet with them and you gather with them. And that's one of the ways you and I know God and know Christ. It's through hanging out with other fallen creatures like ourselves through whom God is working, bad and and badly as it's done at times, 
You and I gain knowledge of God and of Christ through the church in ways you can't get it any other way. And then last, preeminently through Christ, let me read briefly out of 1 John 1. I love this because it is so uh, tangible. When John's writing that first epistle, not his gospel, but the first epistle, he wants you to know that he really knew God. He really knew Christ. How well? Well, he says, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've looked at, we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, we could say made known. We have seen, we testify, we proclaim to you eternal life which was with the Father and was made known to us. He says, basically, we've seen God face to face. We've heard Him. We've touched Him. Christ preeminently is the revelation of God. Hebrews 1 says, He is the effulgence of His glory. I don't know how your uh, translations, it's kind of an odd word. But it's like if you look at a candle that's burning, the flame that you see, God's the candle, Christ is the flame. Where do you separate the flame from the fire, the light from the fire? You can't. Well, Hebrews 1 says that's how close. If you see Christ, you've seen God. If you know Christ, you know God. The Upper Room Discourse, again, you remember, Philip says, uh, hey, show us the Father, it's enough. And Jesus says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Our knowledge of God the Father comes preeminently through Christ himself. And if you think of this, Christ is called in the New Testament our only mediator. He's the one that makes things right between the Father and us. He's our intercessor. Romans 8 and Hebrews tell us. And he's our advocate, our defense attorney. 1 John 1 tells us. He's all these things so that your knowledge and my knowledge of God the Father all passes through Christ the Son. We know the Father through the Son preeminently in the end, whether it's through the Scriptures, whether it's through the Holy Spirit, however you figure it, the lens that we have to gain knowledge of God the Father is through Christ the Son. You know, when you look at your life and mine, and this is something I encourage people to do routinely. Matter of fact, at the beginning of your year is a great time if you're doing your taxes. You're looking through your checkbook. And you know what? My view is when you look through your checkbook, you know what you're really seeing? You're seeing your priorities for life. Where'd you spend your money? That's your priority. Look through your checkbook. What are your priorities? Here's another thing you can do. Look at your calendar. What are your priorities? Your calendar tells you what your priorities are because it tells you where you're spending your time. Look at your checkbook. What are your priorities? Look at your calendar. What are your priorities? If you tell, uh, talk to most Christians and you say, how satisfied are you with your knowledge of God or how well do you know God? You know, the truth is most of us, uh, we're the babies nursing on the bottles once in a while. But if you look at your life, your schedule, your finances, where you spend your energies, how much of that is focused on knowing God? And this is not, uh, not to make anybody feel guilty, but if you're convicted, that's fine. But if you look at your life and you say you spend very little time getting to know God, you know, that's because knowing God's not your priority. And, and let me suggest that on one hand, that's okay in this sense. We spend ourselves and we're spent on what we consider valuable. 
So the degree to which we don't invest ourselves in knowing God, it just means we don't recognize His value. That's kind of what it comes down to. If I uh, spend my time exercising, I value a healthy body or a, a fit body, whatever, because that's my priority. If I'm not spending myself getting to know God better, it's because I don't value God. And then I'd say, you know, on one hand, that's okay. That just means that we need to see why knowing God is valuable. I think God's up to the challenge. If we say, what do I get from knowing God? What, how can knowing God make my life more uh, blessed, prosperous, peaceful? What do I value? There's a few things, and we'll wind down with this. Pascal said there's a God-shaped vacuum in every heart. And Augustine said the heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Do you know, I think most of us very often in our life, we're spinning our wheels, investing ourselves in one thing and another because we're trying to fill the vacuum and we're trying to find the peace. And we're using other things to get the job done. The problem, of course, is that they don't really do the job. That God-shaped vacuum in your heart, nothing else can fill it. And the peace... 2 Peter 1 talked about it can't come from any other source but God himself. So I think we're already motivated to pursue a knowledge of God because we've got this void in the middle of our being because we've got this restlessness that can't be filled by anyone or anything other than God. So there's some motivation there to begin with. It also means if I value filling this void, if I value finding some ultimate or sustaining sense of peace and significance and I can get that through knowing God that's pretty good motivation Uh, I became a Christian not out of fear of hell but I was so lonely I was desperately lonely terribly lonely and when I heard the gospel I understood that Christ was the answer to my loneliness that's what compelled me and I love to learn, too. I can't help it. It's just the way I'm wired. So reading my Bible, it's not an option because I'm, I'm learning more about God all the time. And you guys know, no matter how many times you read your Bible, I don't care if you read the same passage ten times, you'll learn ten new things. You can't exhaust it. We should be motivated because knowing God fills that void and it gives us that peace inside. But think of this, too. Jesus said in John 17 that knowing God the Father and knowing Jesus the Son is life. If you want to quantify life, that is not just that I exist. You know, animals exist, fruit trees exist, but they don't experience life the way Jesus is talking about. Jesus says it's knowing God and knowing Christ that is qualitatively, that's life. So if you said to yourself, you know, I want to have the most exciting, most adventurous fulfilled, peaceful, joyful life I can have, Jesus says, well, that comes about through knowing me. Knowing God the Father, knowing Jesus the Son, that's life. The degree to which we don't know them is the degree to which we don't experience what Jesus says is real life. And you know, God's the author of all the good things you and I have enjoyed. I'm always a bit put off in my own mind related to myself or to others. If God's created all the good things that you and I enjoy... Why would we think he doesn't know how to make life fun or exciting or joyful? Do you know what I mean? We get the sense that we're going to steal the little thing God gave us. We're going to turn our back to him. And in the corner, we're going to enjoy the thing 
he made for us to enjoy. It's twisted. It's crazy. If the good things we enjoy come from him, then getting to know him better means more good things. It doesn't mean less. It means more life, not less. We live in a world today, it's at war with each other. You know, 126 or something killed in one car bombing alone yesterday in Baghdad, I believe. We're at war within ourselves. You know, most of us aren't at peace within ourselves. We're at war quietly sometimes, less quietly other times, in our own families, amongst our own relationships, etc. Peace and significance and joy come from knowing Christ, from knowing God. And let me just invite you in closing to do what Paul did or to have his attitude. You know, the Apostle Paul was a successful guy. You don't read about him in the Gospels, but that's okay. He's a successful guy. He's the emissary of the Sanhedrin. You know, he's the learned of the learned. He's got political clout. He's got social standing. I assume financially he was just fine. He had a good, he had a good thing going. And Jesus knocks him off his horse and introduces himself, turns his life upside down. So this guy who had sort of everything his world had to offer, this is what he says, moving more towards the end of his life. He says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, so that I may know him. Here's a guy who had the world, in a sense, by the tail. He had what the world had to offer. And he said, when I got Christ, I realized that all those things compared to him were nothing. I think the degree to which you and I cling to the things in this life is the degree to which we don't know Christ. And Paul had this great adventure. If you read his life, his biography in Acts or Galatians, on one hand, it doesn't sound that great. Beatings, imprisonments, rejection betrayal, etc. But on the other hand, he says, I wouldn't trade any of it if it meant knowing less of Christ. Knowing Christ was of such value to him. And guys, he knew Christ more than better than any of us ever will. He saw Christ. Christ introduced himself personally on the road. He went to heaven. He saw him. He saw the glories of heaven. He knew the Lord in a way you and I won't on this earth. And he said the more he knew, the more he realized that everything else was rubbish compared to to knowing more about Christ. So ultimately, the greatest adventure you and I can embark on in this life, it's to know God. It's to know more of Christ. To know more of Christ gives us the peace and fills the void that we're created with. It gives us personal knowledge of our Creator. And it's the most exciting thing any of us can ever do or know or have. It's to know more of Christ. It's not a deficit. It's all positive. We can know Christ. We can know God. And when you share the gospel with others, one of the things I'd encourage you to do is share the personal way in which you know Christ, the personal way in which knowing God has changed your life. It's not just about information. Knowledge does include information. But the end, it's personal because you know something that you didn't know before. Because you know God, you know Christ in a way you didn't know Him before. That's personal, that's valuable, and that's meaningful. And in the end, that's really what we're here for. You and I were created to know God and to enjoy Him forever. Let's close on that. Lord, we are tickled in our lives by trinkets while ignoring the awesome reality of You.
Father, I pray that you would help us to see you more clearly and that with each gaze at you or with each time in your word or Lord with each time spent with your church that gaining a little bit more knowledge of you Lord would propel us and would motivate us to see your value and to desire more and more of you and Lord I'm thrilled with the thought that in eternity because you're omnipotent and omniscient and eternal there will never be an end to our growing in the knowledge of you there's always more to learn father help us to commit ourselves to the adventure of knowing more of you and sharing you with others in jesus name amen